Uh, please turn your Bibles to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, and I hope that uh, this morning you are trusting the Lord to, to hold you and to comfort you, to, to keep you, as we think about all the different things that are going on in the lives of those we love, that we just trust in the Lord. We trust in the Lord with our children, those of us who have children, with our, our spouses, for those of us who are married, for for uh, our friends, for our, our fellow believers. We trust in the Lord to hold us, to hold us fast, to hold us close. Well, Genesis 29, uh, we're going to begin in verse 31. And as I read this, notice there's kind of four main sections uh, to this passage, and they all kind of begin with the idea of someone seeing something. So the Lord sees, and then uh, Rachel sees, and Leah sees, and then the Lord remembers something. So kind of four main sections, and that's kind of breaking up the the passage as we look at it this morning, and we're seeing a family that's uh, very dysfunctional, and we see a great need for God's grace and, and peace in this family, and hope that uh, this passage instructs us this morning as we read it. And so I'll, I'll have you stand for part of it, and then I'll, I'll have you sit, and I'll read the rest of it. So if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning, beginning in Genesis 29 beginning in verse 31, reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing You may be seated. I'm going to continue reading. Verse 1 of chapter 30 says, When Rachel saw, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she said she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Well, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you would have 
that you have taken away my husband, would you also take away my son's mandrakes? And Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons, so she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just echo what Dave has has already prayed. We, We think about life in a family in a fallen world. And we recognize this morning on Mother's Day that there are many aspects of being in a fallen world that affect us in different ways this morning. Some people in a a difficult family relationship, some people who would desire to be mothers and aren't this morning, some who uh, are estranged from from mothers or daughters. and, and, And we're all, Father, living in a fallen world. And we we acknowledge that this morning. We recognize it and trust in you. And yet, at the same time, Father, we recognize that even in a fallen world, your grace has been displayed in amazing ways. As, as we think about the, the grace of motherhood and the picture of it and, and how even in, in a fallen world, we see glimpses of the great beauty of, of your relationship and your care for us through the institution of marriage and through the the role of mothers in our lives. We pray that the gospel truths conveyed in a relationship with a mom would be manifested in our lives. Give us great joy this morning to you as we trust in your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let me say at the outset that I had not planned on preaching this passage for Mother's Day. I mean, this is not a Mother's Day text. This is kind of like anti-Mother's Day text. This is not what I, when I sat down, I laid out the calendar and I laid out the passages that we would cover on different dates. I didn't think, you know what, this is the passage for Mother's Day. Uh, This is not what I would have selected. In fact, I knew that today was Mother's Day and I knew that this is the passage that I would preach, but I didn't, I honestly, I didn't make the connection until a few days ago, like halfway through the week. I'm like, oh, right. Uh, that's interesting, okay? Uh, this is, again, this is not the passage that I would have selected, and yet there are some truths in here that I believe are essential truths for all of us to grasp, but perhaps women in a particular way need to hear some of the truths that are in here, and, and maybe women who are mothers in particular. And again, not, uh, my, not my goal to say, you know what, uh, let's cause emotional pain to women on Mother's Day. That's not, absolutely not what I would desire, and yet I, I do believe there's great joy in thinking through even difficult things in God's Word together. And so that's what we're going to do. Here's the main thing 
that I want us to walk away with this morning as we look at this story of a very dysfunctional family. Here's, here's the main idea. My family is not an idol to worship, but is an instrument for worship. That's the main idea I want us to unpack together as we look at this story in Genesis 29, the end of Genesis 29, on into Genesis 30. My family, this, this family that God has given me or placed me in, or this conceptual family that I'm thinking about in the future, whatever it is, my family is not an idol to worship, but rather my family is an instrument for worship, for worship of God. That's what I want us to unpack together this morning, because it is possible for us to take even a good thing, a great thing, like a family, something that God has told us to value and to invest in, it is possible to take something even that good and to value it too highly. That's what idolatry is. It is possible for us to take something good like a family and place too great a value on it. And so you say, well, well Daniel, how... How do I know whether or not I've placed too high a value on family because family is so valuable? How do I know if I've gone too far? I'm glad you asked. That's what I've been kind of wrestling with this week as well. And weeks past as I was kind of thinking about the idea of family idolatry. And what I want to do this morning is I want to take a little bit longer before we get to the text. And I want to give you a quiz because... What says Happy Mother's Day better than a quiz? So that's what I want to do this morning is give us a little quiz. And this quiz is designed to help us see whether or not the fruit of idolatry is being manifested in our lives. If we have placed too high a value on our family, it's going to be manifested in, in, in fruit. If we have placed our families as idols in our lives, there's going to be fruit that comes from that. And that's what I want us to think through Together. So let me give you this quiz designed to see whether or not the fruit of idolatry is being manifested in your life, the fruit of idolizing your family. Here's the first question. Do you build your life around children or the idea of children? Have you built your life around children and you could say around a spouse or family or, or just or even the idea of family? Is your life centered around those things? When you think about your great passion in life, when you think about how you've designed your schedule, when you think about how you've designed your goals in life, are, is your family at the center of that? You say, well, well, shouldn't it be? Shouldn't family be an important part? Well, it should be important. But listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 as he's talking about his imprisonment. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Well, what could cause Paul shame? He says, I want my hope is that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he says in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying that at the center of my life is Christ. The very reason for my existence is to worship Christ, to live for Christ, and dying is gain because it allows me to be with Christ. And so even a parent who loves his or her children very much must say the center of my life is not these precious little treasures from the Lord, but the treasure is the Lord himself. So the first question I have to ask myself is, is my life centered around my family? Is it centered around my children? The answer should be no. Here's the second question. 
It helps us see the fruit of idolatry or whether or not the fruit of idolatry of family is in our life. Second question is this. Do you abuse your God-given parental authority? Do you abuse your God-given parental authority? God has given us as parents, those of us who are parents, he's given us a tremendous amount of authority, and yet at the same time, the authority that God has given us is limited in scope. In other words, it's not an absolute authority. And sometimes, as parents, we have idolatrous expectations for our children, we have idolatrous goals for our family, and we abuse our authority by trying to force our children to pursue a path that isn't necessarily the biblical path. I might, as a dad, have this idolatrous goal of creating these caricatures of me, and so I exercise my authority to make my children like myself, and as I abuse my authority, what I'm revealing is that I've created an idol of my family. The purpose of parental authority is not to impose our will upon someone else. That's not the purpose for which God has granted us authority. Jesus would say in Matthew 20, He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, look, the essence of authority is not lording your authority over others, but the essence of authority is servanthood. And as a parent, my role is to be a servant to my children in the, in the sense that I'm saying, okay, how can I help them know the Lord Jesus Christ? And so my goal in using authority isn't to create these idolatrous recreations of myself or my visions for them, but my goal in parenting is to, to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ, to create soft hearts as much as possible with, with me. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't rules. It doesn't mean that I don't say, look, this is how it's going to be, and there are decrees and things like that. And it certainly is an expectation of mine that children be obedient. But in all of that, in all of that, I understand, look, my, my authority is a derived authority. The scope of my authority is not absolute. It's limited. And the purpose of my authority is not to be an idolatrous purpose, but the purpose of pointing my children, my sons, my daughters, to the Lord Jesus Christ. An idolatrous conception of what the ideal family looks like may drive me as a parent to exercise authority in realms where it's unwise to do so or wrong to do so. And that's certainly more and more true as my kids get older. I'm I'm seeing that truth more and more in my life. Third question to ask ourselves, are you motivated by fear in your parenting? Are you motivated by fear and particularly fear of others, fear of man instead of trust in God? As I design my goals for my family, as I think about what I'm going to do in my family, am I motivated, instead of saying, okay, here's what God would have our family do, am I saying, okay, what, what do other people expect my family to look like? What are their expectations in terms of how we spend our time, in terms of what we do, in terms of the activities we're involved in? Am I saying, what, what does God want me to do? Or do I have a fear of others? And if I have a fear of others, it could reveal that I have a heart of idolatry instead of a heart that sees my family as an instrument to worship God. Fourth question, fourth question to ask ourselves is, uh, do we respond sinfully when our goals for our family aren't met? Do we respond sinfully when our goals for our family aren't met? As a parent, I can say, okay, 
these are the things that I want my family to do. This is what I want our future to look like. And so the, the question I have to ask myself is, when that goal that I have for my family isn't met, how does my heart respond? And if my heart responds with, with anger, my heart res- responds with a lack of the fruit of the Spirit, then what does it reveal? It reveals that this goal that could have been a great goal, a fine goal, has become an idolatrous goal. A few weeks ago, our family sat down and over a course of a, of, well, I guess it was maybe a couple months ago, we sat down over the course of a couple weeks, we had our children each write out five goals for our family. So each of them said, okay, this is what I want our family to look like long term. And, and some of them were really good. Uh, things like, you know, one of our goals is to go on a mission trip together as a family again, or one of our goals is to uh, stay close as we grow older, to, to choose uh, careers wisely. And then there were some other goals. Uh, one of our children wrote, uh, one of their goals was to visit the the DC, the DC Comics headquarters, and uh, another goal was to eat a shark. I mean, so I don't, I don't know why that was a goal, but so there's goals, right? And none of those were, were bad goals, unless you really love sharks, I guess. But uh, none of those are, are bad goals, and yet what are we going to do if this goal that we have for our family isn't met? What if we don't get to go on a, a trip together? What if we don't get to uh, do a mission trip together? What if that doesn't happen? How my heart responds reveals whether or not my, my family has become an idol in my life as God in his sovereignty closes some doors. And so do I sin when my goals for my family aren't met? If the answer is yes, that is a realization of my heart that, man, this, this family thing has become an idol. Instead of having Christ at the center of my life and worshiping him through my family, the family itself has become an idol. There's some issues here. Another question to ask ourselves, we'll talk more about this as we go on through the sermon, do I view my children as an end instead of a means? Do I view my children as an end in and of themselves instead of a means to a greater end, which we'll, we'll continue to talk about? Two more questions. Number six, do you teach your children to have an unbiblical view of the family? Do you teach your children, do I teach my children to have an unbiblical view of the family? God tells us certainly that the family is a valuable institution, but sometimes in the way that we handle our family relationships, we can, we can have them place an unbiblical value on this family, this, this unit of mom, dad, and, and 3.5 children. We can say, okay, this, this, this family unit is so important that we're not going to fulfill our obligations to our extended family. We're not going to treat the grandparents the way that we should, or we're not going to treat aunts and uncles the way that we should, or we're not going to be involved in other people's lives in the way that we should, and because we've said there's this, this value that we place in the family, and our view of the family has warped our children's understanding of what a biblical family looks like, that is a sign that the family has become idolatrous. Then a last question to ask ourselves, and this is very much related to the, to the previous question, but lastly, do you teach your children to have an unbiblical view of the church? Do you teach your children to have an unbiblical view of the church? If you do, it's a sign that your family's become an idol. And what I mean is this. Sometimes we can say, I, I love my family. I love my, my spouse, my children. I love my parents, my siblings. And as I think about my family unit, I can place such a high value on that that I refuse to get involved in serving others who are my larger spiritual family. In fact, I've heard people say before, well, uh, I can't be involved in church right now because my family is my ministry. And I absolutely believe that your family is a ministry, right? And sometimes for a period of time, that may be true. Some people tend to pull back and focus on 
some elements of their, of their family's life. But if it's a consistent characteristic of your life, you say, I can't be involved in other believers' lives because this, this nuclear family is so important to me, I would suggest that your family's become an idol. Your family's become an idol, and you're teaching your children to have an unbiblical view of the church as a fruit of that, okay? Now, let me very gently and lovingly suggest to you this morning that all of us are, are guilty of idolatry of the family in some sense, in terms of either our goals or our desires or our passions. All of us struggle with idolatry of the family. And in a church like Bethany Community Church, as I think about our families, I think one of our strengths is how committed we are to family. I think it is absolutely a strength of this church that we love families, we love kids, and yet even in that strength can be our weakness. Even in that strength can be our weakness, as our love for our family can potentially become idolatrous. It can be potentially become idolatrous. I want to really gently talk about that this morning. I don't want to cause emotional pain, beat up our mothers on Mother's Day, seems, or any day, but it seems especially inappropriate on a morning like this. I want to do this very gently, but I, I want to expose us to some truths in Scripture that I think will help us grasp this overarching truth. Look, my family is not an idol to worship, it's an instrument for worship. And I want us to think through that very carefully very lovingly, very gently, but very biblically. And we're going to look at five things. We're going to see five things that help us combat family idolatry. And these five things that we're going to see, I'm using that word see intentionally because the text uses the word see multiple times. The first thing is just this big overarching thing that we see throughout the whole story. And then we're going to look at characters seeing things, and we're going to look at what they see and what happens in that section, and it's going to help us see some things, will help us combat the idol of something very good, the idol of family, to help us make sure we understand the preciousness of our family in the right way. Here's the first thing that I want us to see. The first thing we need to see is this. We need to see God as the giver of children. We need to see God as the giver of children. As we look at the beginning of the text, we see that it's the Lord who opens the womb of Leah. We see that uh, as Leah has these children over and over again, she says, it's the Lord who's done this. The Lord has done this and, and acted in this way. And then we see that Rachel gets frustrated with Jacob and, and she wants children. And Jacob says, look, it's, it's God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb. Over and over again, we see that it's God who is sovereign over the gift of children. Now, what is the theological implication for us as we think about that truth that God is the giver of children. Well, the implication is that, that God is the giver of children has decided what the purpose of children is. And what God has told us is that the purpose of children is the same thing of the purpose of everything else that God has created. Everything in the universe exists for God's glory, and he has authority over it, and the same is true of children. Children exist for God's glory. He is the one who determines what their purpose is and how they are to glorify him. Now, the implications for me as a parent is that I don't, right? God decides the purpose of children. I don't. We'll continue to unpack that as we go on. This uh, past week, uh, Ellie made a very exciting purchase. This is a purchase that she has been 
planning for about six months. So I, ever since Christmas, she has been wanting to purchase this Amazon Kindle Fire, this little tablet thing, and she's been saving her money. And if you, if you ever struggle with giving a gift to someone and finding that they just don't respond with the appropriate level of excitement, I suggest buying a gift for my daughter. You know, and she just goes crazy. I mean, she is just so excited about gifts. She, <laughs> she opened it and she said, Dad, I need to do a backflip. I mean, she, was, she literally said that to me. I said, well, go for it. And she just flips around. And she's so excited about this Kindle Fire. Now, uh, I, I was impressed. That it, she got a deal on it or something. It was like $39. That's a, that's $39 seems like a pretty good deal for a tablet until I realized they basically have just had us purchase a product that allows us to continue purchasing products for them. It's a brilliant marketing design. And she and I sat down, and she goes, Dad, teach me how to use this. And she, we, so we went online, and we looked at how other people use their Kindle Fires, and we, we used it the way the manufacturer told us to use it. You cannot use it any other way. You cannot use it for other purposes. It makes a very terrible canoe paddle. It doesn't do very well for cleaning the house. It's not a great toothbrush. I mean, there's, it's designed for a purpose, and you find out what the purpose of the designer is for it, and then you use it in a manner in accordance with that and make them lots of money. I mean, that's kind of how it's designed. The same is true of our children. The same is true of our families. And somehow we have got a, a twisted notion in our mind that even though God is the designer of family, God is the designer of children, he is the giver of children, somehow we have twisted our thinking to think, well, I'm kind of in charge of the kids. That's kind of my deal. I get to decide why they're here and what they're going to do. And, and the first step, I think, in combating the idolatry of families is, is to say, look, God is the giver of these guys, these little treasures. And I refer to the children of my home as my children, but I do so in the loosest sense of the word, right? Because ultimately, I understand that these children belong to the Lord. Here's the second thing I think we need to see, or not see, as the case may be. Don't see the blessing of children as a license for self-worship. Again, I want to say this gently, okay? But, but look what happens here. The Lord sees Verse 31, the Lord sees, what does he see? That Leah was hated. It means that she was unloved in comparison with her sister. And he opens her womb, and a, a, a pattern follows, and it's a heartbreaking pattern. The text will tell us that she conceives, that the Lord allows her to conceive, and then she'll bear a son, and then it'll, she'll say something about how she believes this child will affect positive change in her marriage, and she bases the name of this child upon what's happening in her marriage, hoping that, that God will act, hoping that her husband will respond. So, for example, in verse 32, she has a son. She calls him Reuben, and she says, well, she says, well the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now my husband will love me. And that word Reuben sounds like the, the Hebrew word for look. Then she has this next son in verse 33. She says, uh, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. And she calls his name Simeon. And Simeon sounds like the Hebrew word for here. And then she has Levi in verse 34. She conceives, she bears a son. Now this time my husband will be attached to me. And the word Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attach. Now, do you sense the incredible heartache here? What does Leah want? Leah wants something good, something right to want. 
She wants the love of her husband. Can you imagine being Leah? Can you imagine waking up from your wedding night and your husband feeling like he was swindled, that he was deceived? All Leah wants, all she desires is that she live in the type of marriage relationship that God desires a husband and wife to live in. She wants a, a one flesh, oneness relationship. She wants her husband to be attached. And so she names her children names that she thinks will, will recognize that now God has acted and my husband will respond to God's work in his life and, and he'll become attached to me. He'll love me. He'll care for me. And it doesn't happen. I want you to imagine you were Leah's friend and you saw this dysfunction in the family and she came to you. Or imagine you were her pastor and she came to you for counsel or you were her small group leader and you needed to say something. What would you say? What do you say to Leah? My temptation would, would just be to talk about how bad I feel for her because absolutely that would be my, my dominant emotional response and it would be a right emotional response to, to weep with Leah and to say, my heart breaks for you. I cannot believe you're going through this. And by the way, as I say this, this, is not, we're not, this isn't some abstract issue, right? I mean, you know women in the church who struggle with a, a bad home situation. And as you see them in that bad home situation, your heart breaks for them. You want to care for them. You want to love them. It's, it's tragic. Let me suggest to you that there's something else that needs to be said to Leah here. She needs to understand that children cannot be the instrument through which she finds fulfillment. Her thinking is this, I'm going to have these kids, and these kids are going to produce the affection of my husband, and then once I have that, I'll have joy. The children can be a means to, and I say this very, very gently, self-worship, getting what I want, what I desire. What she wants is good. The way that she desires it reveals idolatry. And families, I know this is true for so many of us, but kids, children, family cannot be what you find your ultimate joy in. You cannot view children as the instruments that will bring you validation in life. And our temptation sometimes is to look at the, the millions of different validating sticks that children provide, right? I mean, you can compare your children to other children in anything. You know, like, okay, this, my kid is more athletic than these other kids, or my kid is a better student than these other students, or my children, child is better at um, playing video games than the other kids. I mean, he can really waste hours at that. Or my, my child is, is uh, really good at memorizing Awana Bible verses. I mean, there, there are all sorts of different tools that we can use to say, okay, this is where my kid excels, and, and that means I excel because I'm the parent. I can remember being <laughs> the, you know, the first-time parent and this little uh, you know, baby blob and uh, seeing, putting my baby blob next to the other baby blobs and seeing which one was going to smile first or roll over first or read first or whatever it was. There's just this, okay, once my child does this, then I have validation. Look, here's the point. Don't see the blessing of children as a license for self-worship. Don't see the presence of children as this means by which you're going to find your validation. And, and let, me, let me cut the distinction finally here. I hope this makes sense. Children can absolutely be a source of joy, but they can't be the cause of joy. Does, does that distinction make sense? 
In other words, as we look at our children, that can be a source of bringing us joy as we think about what God is doing in their lives, but, but that can't be the cause. It can't be the cause. And many of us have seen our family as a tool that will cause there to be fulfillment in our life, and that's idolatry. Our ultimate source of joy must be Christ. It must be Christ. Here's the third thing. Don't see the absence of children as a problem to be solved by whatever means possible. And you could put something else in that blank besides children. Don't see the absence of a spouse. Or don't see the absence of the happy family. Don't, don't, whatever it is, don't see the absence of children as a problem to be solved by whatever means necessary. We come to verse 1 of chapter 30, and now Rachel sees something. It says Rachel sees that she doesn't have any children, and, and the response is, is envy. And we know from James chapter 4, as we talked about earlier, that, that, that the presence of conflict and strife is the, the sign of the fruit of idolatry. And Rachel says to her husband, uh, give me children, I'll die. And we see in her response, again, I hope we feel empathy as we see her response, but we also see in her response that it's a, a sinful emotional response. First of all, the idea that Jacob can be the one that gives her children is, is not right thinking. And the idea that she'll die if she doesn't get children is not right thinking. There's an emotional response here that, that reveals this heart of idolatry. Understandable, yes, but also wrong. Many of you have experienced Rachel's pain, and, and Rachel's in this culture, as are we, in which children are valued, and there's this, this idea that these children are, are necessary for joy. There's even, as we think about our cultural context, we, we look at Scripture, and Scripture describes how wonderful and precious children are. We look at Psalm 127, for example, verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord, the, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And many of you who have been in Rachel's situation can say, well, well, that just, just think about it. You're around people and they have children and, and you don't and you desire them. And, and scripture talks about how great these children are and there, there can be some tremendous, tremendous pain. The pain is not sinful. The sorrow is not sinful. But our response to the sorrow can potentially be sinful, right? And as you look at this story, as you look at this story and you, you see what happens as a result of, of this desire for children, you recognize you would not wish this pain on anyone, right? Because people in this story pursue children, have made an idol of children, and pursue them in a sinful way. It doesn't bring joy. The children don't bring joy. Here, here would be my encouragement to to so many of you who've struggled with wanting children or more children or wanting a spouse or wanting the family, whatever situation you find yourself in and you find yourself not reaching something that, that seems to be good, don't look at the situation God has put you in and his sovereign love for you as a problem that you have to solve through sinful means. I've been so impressed. We have this adoption ministry and there have been many women that we've talked with who have had struggles with infertility, and I, I've just appreciated the way in which God has, has worked in their hearts in some profound ways, and they've, they've shared with me some very uh, just beautiful stories of saying, look, I recognize that, that I'm pursuing children not because these children are going to be those who bring me glory, but because I see that God has placed me in a unique way in which I, I can care for another person and provide 
another person the means to glorify God. Do, do you see the distinction or heart attitude there between that attitude and the attitude of Rachel? All of us, as we think about our value of family, must come to this conclusion, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient for me. With the presence of children, without the presence of children, with a spouse, without a spouse, with a happy home, with an unhappy home, no matter what situation I find myself in, Christ is enough. The absence of whatever blessing it is that other people have, the absence of that in my life is not a problem to be solved by sinful means. It is a means by which God has given me to glorify him. Here's a fourth thing to see as we fight idolatry. We need to see God's grace as more powerful than sin. We're going to combat idolatry effectively. We need to see God's grace as more powerful than sin. And we come to verse 9 of chapter 30 and we see another sight. It says that Leah sees something. She sees that she has ceased bearing children. So she also responds in a, a sinful way. She uh, provides her servant to her husband as well to, to bear children. And, and just as Rachel had done earlier, compounding a bad situation, making a bad situation worse. And then we also, here in this section of the story, see something kind of strange happen. There's this incident with these these mandrakes, this, this food that uh, that is exchanged for things for which it should not be exchanged for, these marital relations, trading in things that should be above trade, as one person puts it. And it's just a, it's a terrible situation. It's just a sign of a family that has totally gone off the rails in terms of understanding what a, a family relationship should be like. It's, host, it's hostile, it's full of conflict, it's full of immorality. It is just a mess. And yet, what do you see in the midst of that? In the midst of that, you, you see the grace of children. And you see that even in the midst of that, God is caring for this family. For example, after this, this situation with the, the mandrakes, it says in verse 17 that God listened to Leah. What? Even in the midst of a family going off the rails, Leah doing some things that she should not do, Rachel being involved in some things that, in which she should not be involved, Jacob just being this passive guy who comes in from the field and his wives tell him what's going to happen and he's just not even involved, it seems, emotionally in what's taking place. And, and yet, even in the midst of that dysfunction, what's happening? God is acting, God is caring for them, God is providing for his covenant people. Now, this is not to say, you know what, just do whatever you want with your family and eventually it's going to work out. God's gracious, so sin all you want, as Paul says in Romans. Uh, should we say that sin all the more so that grace should be abound? May it never be, right? He says in Romans 6. But what does it tell me? My heart struggles with this. My heart has this desire that I, I want my family to look a certain way. And, and sometimes my thinking can be this. Okay, there's this goal for my family to, to be this this, this thing that brings honor and glory to God, and there's this path that leads to that. And so sometimes my fear can be that if I don't stay on this path exactly, then I've messed it all up, and all hope for my family is gone, and, and this, it can become I, this idolatrous fear. And, and here's what I take comfort in in this passage. God's grace is far more powerful than my sin. God's grace in my life is so great that it can overpower any sin that is in my life. I think just as an example, and I, I'm sure you can think of these examples as well, I think about just in my relationship with my wife. 
you know, we, we dated when we were very young, and there were some things in our dating relationship, particularly when it came to our families, that just some things did not work out the way that they should have. And I said some things at times that I shouldn't have as an arrogant young man. And, and I just kind of look at all that, and, and I didn't even know as a young man what I should be looking for in a, a wife. And Wendy and I, in God's grace, we got married young. And I can just remember a couple months into our marriage looking at Whitney and thinking, Lord, you were so gracious here. I could have gotten myself into a, a, a terrible situation because I, I didn't even know what I was looking for in a spouse. And now I look at Whitney and think, you knew and you were gracious. God is gracious. Maybe in, in other ways than he's been gracious in my life, but, but he's gracious. And wherever we find ourselves in the, the journey in which God is bringing us, I think it's appropriate for us to say, you know, God, even though I may find myself in a situation that's a consequence of sin, you're gracious. And as we see God's grace is more powerful than sin, it, it helps us in our family in this way. Because instead of saying, okay, I've got to work to create this family, and I have this idol, and I'm going to create it, I'm going to craft it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fashion this idol of family in the way that I want it to look, what it means is I approach my family with the gospel. And in my, my relationship with my spouse, it's a gospel relationship in which I say, look, uh, sweetheart, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace, and I'm trusting in Jesus Christ, and, and please help me do that. And she says the same thing to me. And then in my parenting with my kids, instead of trying to force them into some sort of warped caricature of myself that I can worship, I'm saying to them, look, Dad has some issues, and I, I want to love Jesus, and I want to love Jesus with you. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ, how we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And our kids grasp that message, and we worship the Lord together like that. That's, that's what happens as we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of the idol as family, we see that God's grace is more powerful than our sin, but we model that to our kids. Here's a fifth thing to see, last thing I want us to, to talk about. We must see children not as an end, but as a, a means to worship God. We've kind of alluded to this as we've gone through the passage this morning. We see our children not as an end in and of themselves, this last thing here, but as a means to worship God. God has seen something in this text, and then Rachel sees something, Leah sees something, and then in verse 22, God remembers something. It says, God remembered Rachel, again, a sign of his grace. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, and Joseph means taken away saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Let's think about this story in its, its redemptive context, in the context of the Pentateuch, and then its overall context in the story of God's redemption of humanity. We have this the story of fallen humanity, and God has promised from Genesis 3 to provide a seed, a descendant of the woman who is going to deal with sin. And then he promises Abraham land. He promises him a people. He promises him that his descendants are going to be a blessing to the nations. And now God is, is working through the seed of Abraham, providing the people that are going to be the people through whom the Messiah comes, through whom all the nations are going to be blessed. And God is using this family this family of, of 12 sons and a daughter here, we're, we're going to see the, the 12 sons. He's using a bunch of sons whose names reveal dysfunction. I mean, over and over again, each name reveals striving and argument and desire for relationship. God is using that family to bring about his glory, to bring about the people that are going to produce the Messiah. 
the one who ultimately takes away reproach. This, this desire, this ultimate desire for, for, for fulfillment and for the, the, the covenant promises found in the person of Jesus. All the yearnings of the, barren, of the barren, of the hurting, of the sad are found. All the fulfillments are not found in family, are not found in children, are not found in a spouse. But all the yearnings of our heart are only found and are ultimately found in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. And my desire for my family is not that I create a family of little, little Daniels that I can worship. My desire is to create a family that points people to the beauty of Jesus Christ. I want to point my children and my spouse to the infinite value of knowing and believing in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. And I want our family to be a picture of people who are not worshiping ourselves, but are worshiping Jesus Christ. Moms. You struggle with this. Dads, we struggle with this. Children, we struggle with this. Singles, we struggle with this. Our ultimate value is not found in fill in the blank. This morning it's children, family. Ultimate value is found in Jesus Christ. My family is not an idol to worship, but is an instrument for worship of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, This morning, as we think of the great joy of being in relationship with you, we pray that you would be gracious. You would help our desire to be centered upon your son, Jesus, and in him alone. We pray that you would help us as we think about him. Help us to think rightly. Help our love for your son, Jesus, to flow into our love for our kids, to flow into our love for our spouses, to flow into our love for the other people in our fellowship. Help us to love you above all things. We pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.